When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, a story called That's Marriage by Edna Ferber, Part 1. Born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, Edna Ferber wrote short stories, plays, and novels which were adapted into sizzling, popular movies. Ferber's work generally featured strong female protagonists supported by characters who had to overcome some form of discrimination or who weren't the pretty people. She tended to favor these characters the most, perhaps as a result of her straightforward Midwestern upbringing. Ferber spent her early years in Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, and Wisconsin, attended Lawrence University briefly, then became a reporter. She covered both the Democratic and Republican national conventions for the United, for the United Press Association before turning to writing her popular novels. And she had some very popular novels. Giant, in 1952, was adapted as a blockbuster Hollywood movie in 1956, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. Her novel So Big, written in 1924, earned her a Pulitzer Prize and was adapted into at least three movies. Other Ferber novels ripe for the movies included Showboat, which she wrote in 1926, and Cimarron, which won Best Picture at the Academy Awards in 1931. As an author, she was a huge talent. She never married had children, or revealed any romantic relationships. As one of her characters states in her early novel, Dawn O'Hara, being an old maid was a great deal like death by drowning, a really delightful sensation when you ceased struggling. And now, That's Marriage, by Edna Ferber. Teresa Platt, she had been Terry Sheehan, watched her husband across the breakfast table with eyes that smoldered. But Orville Platt was quite unaware of any smoldering in progress. He was occupied with his eggs. How could he know that these very eggs were feeding the dull red menace in Terry Platt's eyes? When Orville Platt ate a soft-boiled egg, he concentrated on it. He treated it as a great adventure, which, after all, it is. Few adjuncts of our daily life contain the element of chance that is to be found in a three-minute breakfast egg. This was Orville Platt's method of attack— First, he chipped off the top neatly. Then he bent forward and subjected it to a passionate and relentless scrutiny. Straightening, preparatory to plunging his spoon therein, he flapped his right elbow. It wasn't exactly a flap, it was a pass between a hitch and a flap, and presented external evidence of a mental state. Orville Platt always gave that little preliminary jerk when he was contemplating a serious step, or when he was moved or argumentative. It was a trick as innocent as it was maddening. Terry Platt had learned to look for that flap. They had been married four years, to look for it, and to hate it with a morbid, unreasoning hate. That flap of the elbow was tearing Terry Platt's nerves into raw, bleeding fragments. 
Her fingers were clenched tightly under the table now. She was breathing unevenly. If he does that again, she told herself, if he flaps again when he opens the second egg, I'll scream. I'll scream. I'll... He had scooped the first egg into his cup. Now he picked up the second, chipped it, concentrated, straightened, then up went the elbow, and down with the accustomed little flap. The tortured nerve snapped. Through the early morning quiet of Watona, Wisconsin, hurtled a shrill, piercing shriek of Terry Platt's hysteria. "'Terry, for God's sake, what's the matter?' Orville Platt dropped the second egg and his spoon. The egg yolk trickled down his plate. The spoon made a clatter and flung a gay spot of yellow on the cloth. He started toward her. Terry, wild-eyed, pointed a shaking finger at him. She was laughing now, uncontrollably. "'Your elbow! Your elbow!' "'Elbow?' He looked down at it, bewildered, then up, frightened his face. "'What's the matter with it?' She mopped her eyes. Sob shook her. "'You flapped it!' The bewilderment in Orville Platt's face gave way to anger. "'Do you mean to tell me that you screeched like that because my—' "'Because I moved my elbow?' "'Yes!' His anger deepened and reddened to fury. He choked. He had started from his chair with his napkin in his hand. He still clutched it. Now he crumpled it into a wad and hurled it into the center of the table, where it struck a sugar bowl, dropped back, and uncrumpled slowly, reprovingly. "'You! You!' Then bewilderment closed down again like a fog over his countenance. "'But why?' I can't see. Because, because I can't stand it any longer. Flapping. That's what you do. Like this. And she did it. Did it with insulting fidelity. Being a clever mimic. Well, all I can say is you're crazy. Yelling like that for nothing. It isn't nothing. It isn't, huh? If it isn't nothing, what is it? They were growing incoherent. What do you mean screeching like a maniac? Like a wild woman? The neighbors will think I've killed you. What do you mean, anyway? I mean I'm tired of watching it, that's what. Sick and tired of it. You are, huh? Well, young lady, just let me tell you something. And he told her. There followed one of those incredible quarrels, as sickening as they are human, which can take place only between two people who love each other, who love each other so well that each knows with cruel certainty the surest way to wound the other and who stab and tear and claw at these vulnerable spots in exact proportion to their love. Ugly words, bitter words, words that neither knew flew between them like sparks between steel striking steel. From him, trouble with you is you haven't got enough to do. That's the trouble of half you women. Just lay around the house rotting. I'm a fool, slaving on the road to keep a good-for-nothing... I suppose you call sitting around hotel lobbies slaving? I suppose the house runs itself? How about my evenings? Sitting here alone, night after night, while you're on the road. Finally, well, if you don't like it, he snarled and lifted his chair by the back and slammed it down savagely. If you don't like it, why don't you get out then? Why don't you get out? And from her, her eyes narrowed to two slits, her cheeks scarlet. Why, thanks. I think I will. Ten minutes later, he had flung out of the house to catch the 819 for Manitowoc. He marched down the street, his shoulders swinging rhythmically to the weight of the burden he carried, 
his black leather handbag, and the shiny tan sample case, battle-scarred, both from many encounters with ruthless porters and busmen and bellboys. For four years, as he left for his semi-monthly trip, he and Terry had observed a certain little ceremony, as had the neighbors. She would stand in the doorway, watching him down the street, the heavier sample case banging occasionally at his shin. The depot was only three blocks away. Terry watched him with fond but unillusioned eyes, which proves that she really loved him. He was a dapper, well-dressed fat man, with a weakness for pronounced patterns and suitings, and addicted to derbies. One week on the road, one week at home. That was his routine. The wholesale grocery trade liked Platt, and he had for his customers the fondness that a traveling salesman has who is successful in his territory. Before his marriage to Terry Sheehan, his little red address book had been overwhelming proof against the theory that nobody loves a fat man. Terry, standing in the doorway, always knew that when he reached the corner, just where Schroeder's house threatened to hide him from view, he would stop, drop the sample case, wave his hand just once, pick up the sample case, and go on, proceeding backward for a step or two until Schroeder's house made good its threat. It was a common scene in the eyes of the onlooker, perhaps because a chubby Romeo offends the sense of fitness. The neighbors, lurking behind their parlor curtains, had laughed at first, but after a while they learned to look for that little scene, and to take it unto themselves, as if it were a personal thing. Fifteen-year wives whose husbands had long since abandoned plowery farewells used to get a vicarious thrill out of it, and to eye Terry with a sort of envy. This morning Orville Platt did not even falter when he reached Schroeder's corner. He marched straight on, looking steadily ahead, the heavy bag swinging from either hand. Even if he had stopped, though she knew he wouldn't, Terry Platt would not have seen him. She remained seated at the disordered breakfast table, a dreadfully still figure, and sinister, a figure of stone and fire, of ice and flame. Over and over in her mind she was merely the things she might have said to him, and had not. She brewed a hundred vitriolic cruelties that she might have flung in his face. She would concoct one biting brutality, and dismiss it for a second, and abandon that for a third. She was too angry to cry, a dangerous state in a woman. She was what is known as cold mad, so that her mind was working clearly, and with amazing swiftness, and yet as though it were a thing detached, a thing that was no part of her. She sat thus for the better part of an hour, motionless except for one forefinger that was, quite unconsciously, tapping out a popular and cheap little air that she had been strumming at the piano the evening before, having bought it downtown that same afternoon. It had struck Orville's fancy, and she had played it over and over for him, her right forefinger was playing the entire tune, and something in the back of her head was following it accurately, though the separate thinking process was going on just the same. Her eyes were bright and wide and hot. Suddenly she became conscious of the musical antics of her finger. She folded it in with its mates, so that her hand became a fist. She stood up and stared down at the clutter of the breakfast table. The egg, that fateful second egg, had congealed to a mottled mass of yellow and white. The spoon lay on the cloth. His coffee, only half consumed, showed tan with a cold gray film over it. A slice of toast at the left of his plate seemed to grin at her with the semicircular wedge that he had bitten out of it. Terry stared down at these congealing remnants. Then she laughed, a hard, high little laugh, pushed the plate away contemptuously with her hand, and walked into the sitting room. On the piano was a piece of music, 
Benny Gottschalk's great song hit, Hickey Bula, which she had been playing the night before. She picked it up, tore it straight across once, placed the pieces back to back, and tore it across again. Then she dropped the pieces to the floor. "'You bet I'm going,' she said, as though concluding the train of thought. "'You just bet I'm going, and right now.' And Terry went. She went for much the same reason as that given by the lady of high degree in the old English song. She would left her lured and bed and board to go with the raggle-taggle gypsies. Oh! The thing that was sending Terry Platt away was much more than a conjugal quarrel precipitated by a soft-boiled egg and a flap of the arm. It went so deep that it is necessary to delve back to the days when, when Teresa Platt was Terry Sheehan to get the real significance of it, and of the thing she did after she went. We'll return with our story, That's Marriage, by Edna Ferber, right after these sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now back to our story. When Mrs. Orville Platt had been Terry Sheehan, she had played the piano afternoons and evenings in the orchestra of the Bijou Theater on Cass Street, Watona, Wisconsin. Anyone with a name like Terry Sheehan would, perforce, do well anything she might set out to do. There was nothing of genius in Terry, but there was something of fire, and much that was Irish, which meant that the Watson team, eccentric song and dance artists, never needed a rehearsal when they played the Bijou. Ruby Watson used merely to approach Terry before the Monday performance, sheet music in hand, and say, Listen, dearie, we've got some new business I want to wise you to. Right here it goes. Tum diddy dum diddy dum tum dum dum. See? Like that. And then Jim Vamps. Get me? Terry at the piano would pucker her pretty brow a moment, then. Like this, you mean? That's it. You've got it. All right. I'll tell the drum. She could play any tune by ear once heard. She got the spirit of a thing and transmitted it. When Terry played a martial number, you tapped the floor with your foot and unconsciously straightened your shoulders. When she played a home and mother song, you hoped that the man next to you didn't know you were crying, which he probably didn't, because he was weeping too. At that time, motion pictures did not attain their present virulence. Vaudeville, polite or otherwise, had not yet been crowded out by the ubiquitous film. The Bijou offered entertainment of the cigar-box tramp variety, interspersed with trick bicyclists, sobrettes in slightly soiled pink, trained seals, and family fours with lumpy legs who tossed each other about and struck Goldbergian attitudes. Contact with these gave Terry Sheehan a semi-professional tone. The more conservative of her townspeople looked at her askance. 
"'There never had been an evil thing about Terry, "'but Watona considered her rather fly. "'Terry's hair was very black, "'and she had a fondness for those little, "'close-fitting scarlet turbans. "'Terry's mother had died when the girl was eight, "'and Terry's father had been what is known as easy-going, "'a good-natured, lovable, shiftless chap "'in the contracting business. "'He drove around Watona in a sagging, one-seated cart, "'and never made any money because he did honest work "'and charged as little for it as men who did not. "'His mortar stuck, and his bricks did not crumble, "'and his lumber did not crack. "'Riches are not acquired in the contracting business in that way. "'Ed Sheehan and his daughter were great friends. "'When he died, she was nineteen, "'they say she screamed once, like a banshee, "'and dropped to the floor. "'After they had straightened out the muddle of books "'in Ed Sheehan's gritty, dusty little office, "'Terry turned her piano-playing talent to practical account.' At twenty-one she was still playing at the bijou, and into her face was creeping the first hint of that look of sophistication which comes from daily contact with the artificial world of the footlights. There are, in a small Midwest town like Botona, just two kinds of girls, those who go downtown Saturday nights and those who don't. Terry, if she had not been busy with her job at the bijou, would have come in the first group. She craved excitement. There was little chance to satisfy such craving in Botona, "'but she managed to find certain means. "'The traveling men from the Burke House just across the street "'used to drop in at the Bijou for an evening's entertainment. "'They usually sat well toward the front, "'and Terry's expert playing, and the gloss of her black hair, "'and her piquant profile as she sometimes looked up toward the stage "'for a signal from one of the performers, "'caught their fancy, and held it. "'She found herself, at the end of a year or two, "'with a rather large acquaintance among these peripatetic gentlemen.' "'You occasionally saw one of them strolling home with her. "'Sometimes she went driving with one of them of a Sunday afternoon. "'And she rather enjoyed taking Sunday dinner at the Burke Hotel with a favored friend. "'She thought those small-town hotel Sunday dinners the last word in elegance. "'The roast course was always accompanied by an aqueous, semi-frozen concoction "'which the bill of fare revealed as Roman punch. "'It added a royal touch to the repast, even when served with roast pork.' Terry was twenty-two when Orville Platt, making his initial Wisconsin trip for the wholesale grocery house he represented, first beheld her piquant Irish profile and heard her deft manipulation of the keys. Orville had the fat man's sense of rhythm and love of music. He had a buttery tenor voice, too, of which he was rather proud. He spent three days in Watona that first trip, and every evening saw him at the Bijou, first row, center. He stayed through two shows each time, and before he had been there fifteen minutes, "'Terry was conscious of him through the back of her head. "'Orville Platt paid no more heed to the stage "'and what was occurring thereon than if it had not been. "'He sat looking at Terry "'and wagging his head in time to the music. "'Not that Terry was a beauty, "'but she was one of those immaculately clean types. "'That look of fragrant cleanliness was her chief charm. "'Her clear, smooth skin contributed to it "'and the natural penciling of her eyebrows. "'But the thing that accented it "'and gave it a last touch was the way in which her black hair came down in a little point just in the center of her forehead, where hair meets brow. It grew to form what is known as a cowlick. A prettier name for it is Widow's Peak. Your eye lighted on it, pleased, and from it traveled its gratified way down her white temples, past her little ears, to the smooth black coil at the nape of her neck. It was a trip that rested you. At the end of the last performance on the night of his second visit to the Bijou, Orville waited until the audience had begun to file out. Then he leaned forward over the rail that separated orchestra from audience. "'Could you?' 
he said, his tones dulcet. "'Could you oblige me with the name of that last piece you played?' Terry was stacking her music. "'George!' she called to the drum. "'Gentleman wants to know the name of that last piece.' And she prepared to leave. "'My Georgia Cracker Jack,' said the laconic drum. Orville Platt took a hasty sidestep in the direction of the door toward which Terry was headed. "'It's a pretty thing,' he said fervently. "'An awful pretty thing. Thanks. It's beautiful.' Terry flung a last insult at him over her shoulder. "'Don't thank me for it. I didn't write it.' Orville Platt did not go across the street to the hotel. He wandered up Cass Street and into the ten o'clock quiet of Main Street and down as far as the park and back. "'Pretty as a pink.' "'And play! And good, too! Good!' "'A fat man in love. "'At the end of six months they were married. "'Terry was surprised into it. "'Not that she was not fond of him. "'She was, and grateful to him as well. "'For, pretty as she was, "'no man had ever before asked Terry to be his wife. "'They had made love to her. "'They had paid court to her. "'They would sent her large boxes of stale drugstore chocolates.' "'and called her endearing names as they made cautious decorations such as, "'I've known a lot of girls, but you've got something different. "'I don't know. you got so much sense. "'A fella could chum around with you, little pal.' "'Watona would be their home. "'They rented a comfortable seven-room house in a comfortable middle-class neighborhood, "'and Terry dropped the red velvet turbans and went in for picture hats. "'Orville bought her a piano whose tone was so good that to her ear, "'accustomed to the metallic discords of the bijou instrument, "'it sounded out of tune. "'She played a great deal at first, "'but unconsciously she missed the sharp spate of applause "'that used to follow her public performance. "'She would play a piece brilliantly, "'and then her hands would drop to her lap, "'and the silence of her own city room "'would fall flat on her ears. "'It was better on the evenings when Orville was home. "'He sang in his throaty, fat man's tenor "'to Terry's expert accompaniment.' "'This is better than playing for those ham actors, isn't it, hon?' "'And he would pinch her ear. "'Sure. Sure. Listlessly. "'But after the first year, she became accustomed to what she termed private life. "'She joined an afternoon sewing club "'and was active in the ladies' branch of the UCT. "'She developed a knack at cooking, too, "'and Orville, after a week or ten days of hotel fare in small Wisconsin towns, "'would come home to sea-foam biscuits and real soup.' "'an honest pies and cake. "'Sometimes, in the midst of an appetizing meal, "'he would lay down his knife and fork "'and lean back in his chair "'and regard the cool and unruffled Terry "'with a sort of reverence in his eyes. "'Then he would get up "'and come round to the other side of the table "'and tip her pretty face up to his. "'I'll bet I'll wake up some day "'and find out it's all a dream. "'You know this kind of thing doesn't really happen. "'Not to a dub like me.' One year, two, three, four. Routine. A little boredom. Some impatience. She began to find fault with the very things she had liked in him. His super neatness. His fondness for dashing suit patterns. His throaty tenor. His worship of her. And the flap. Oh, above all, that flap. That little, innocent, meaningless mannerism that made her tremble with nervousness. She hated it so that she could not trust herself to speak of it to him. Well, that was the trouble. Had she spoken of it, laughingly or in earnest, before it became an obsession with her, that hideous breakfast quarrel with its taunts and revilings and open hate might never have come to pass. 
Terry Platt herself didn't know what was the matter with her. She would have denied that anything was wrong. She didn't even throw her hands above her head and shriek, I want to live! I want to live! Like a lady in a play. She only knew she was sick of sewing at the Batona West End Red Cross shop. Sick of marketing, of home comforts, of Orville, of the flap. Orville, you may remember, left at 819. The 1123 bore Terry Chicagoward. She left the house as it was, beds unmade, rooms unswept, breakfast table uncleared. She intended never to come back. Now and then a picture of the chaos she had left behind would flash across her order-loving mind. The spoon on the tablecloth. Orville's pajamas dangling over the bathroom chair. The coffee pot on the gas stove. Pooh! What do I care? In her pocketbook she had a tidy sum saved out of the housekeeping money. She was naturally thrifty, and Orville had never been cheap. Her meals when Orville was on the road had been those sketchy, haphazard affairs with which women content themselves when their household is manless. At noon she went into the dining car and ordered a flaunting little repast of chicken salad and asparagus and Neapolitan ice cream. The men in the dining car eyed her speculatively and with appreciation. Then their glance dropped to the third finger of her left hand and wandered away. She had meant to remove it. In fact, she had taken it off and dropped it into her bag, but her hand felt so queer, so unaccustomed, so naked, that she had found herself slipping the narrow band on again, and her thumb groped for it, gratefully. It was almost five o'clock when she reached Chicago. She felt no uncertainty or bewilderment. She had been in Chicago three or four times since her marriage. She went to a downtown hotel. It was too late, she told herself, to look for a less expensive room that night. We hope you enjoyed part one of That's Marriage by Edna Ferber. We'll return with part two next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon.